Hey guys, welcome to the show today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, we have a special episode for you today. This is a lecture I gave recently at Catalina Foothills Church in Tucson, Arizona, a special event they put on for the local community as well as for some of the local pro-life chapters in order to wake up the church and get them involved to end abortion in their communities by providing the hope of the gospel and the help of the local church to individuals contemplating abortion. And so this was a lecture I gave called Everything Wrong with Being Pro-Choice. Uh, and we go through the five bad ways that the abortion industry and their activist movement argues for abortion. What are the flaws in their reasoning? And we go through the five street-level mistakes that every pro-choice argument and pro-choice individual makes so you're aware of them, you see them beforehand, and you know how to respond. So thank you so much for tuning in. Give this show a rating and review. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you think about the lecture. And next week we'll air the Q&A section of this awesome, excellent event so you can see how these ideas play out in the real world. Thank you so much for tuning in. Buckle up. Here we go. Good evening. How are you guys? It's so wonderful to see you. For a lot of 2020, all of my speaking gigs that were in schools were with students who were required to wear masks on their faces. And so I was looking at all these individuals and I was like, I don't know if they're pumped on this presentation or if they're planning to mug me after my chapel talk because I have no facial expressions. I have no idea what they're thinking. And so it's wonderful to see your smiling faces back at me and to be with you this evening in this... Um, far greater than California state, um, but not as great as we thought it was as of late. And this is why I believe it's important for the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the church in America, to wake up and abandon our obsession with being associated with partisan labels in order to engage in the work that is necessary to restore personhood to God's preborn image bearers. And there are many ways that we do that, but if we abandon the political battle, we will never restore personhood to preborn children, and we will get every other issue wrong. And this is why I'm fond of saying that if you don't get the right to life right, you won't get any other rights right. A country that denies the natural right to life to an entire class of human beings cannot be trusted to protect any other right that flows from that first and most important of all rights. And for nearly 48 years, our government has pretended that the right to life is a myth and a fiction that only silly Republican rubes believe in. But the reality is, as long as we continue to get that right wrong, we're going to get every other natural right wrong and watch this republic deteriorate before our very eyes. Now, why do I say it? Why do I start with that introduction? Because I believe that if the church doesn't wake up and start treating abortion as the litmus test of our republic, as our holocaust, as the civil rights issue of our day, not only will we be complicit in the killing of God's preborn children, but we're going to give an account to God and to future generations as to why we couldn't stand and utilize the political tools that our forefathers bled and died to give us in order to exercise self-government and promote the social good and human flourishing. But that starts with the right to life. And so I believe God is doing something in the country right now, unlike anything else I've seen in, yes, my short, few short years. I believe that God is priming America for another revival. And I know this because I've speak, spoken in more churches on the issue of life in the last six months than I had in the previous six years. Winston Churchill once said that there's something going on in space and time and beyond space and time that whether we like it or not spells duty. And he was saying 
saying that about a Holocaust happening across the ocean. Well, we have a Holocaust happening here today, and I believe God is moving and doing something mighty because God could get rid of abortion tomorrow if he wanted. He could have got rid of it 48 years ago when it was legalized. Why hasn't he? Because he chooses to use us as his hands and feet before he moves. That's a privilege and that's a blessing. And if we don't get the right to life right, we won't get any other rights right. But I want to dive in this evening into the premises of the culture of death. I want to dive in to what the enemy believes. Yes, the enemy of our souls is ultimately the enemy who is the animating figure behind the culture of death because he's a lion that prowls around looking for those to devour. And yes, the pro-abortion advocate is not our quote-unquote enemy. It's really Satan. But they are the enemy of pre-born children and they're being used by Satan in order to attack life in the womb and the pro-life movement who seeks to protect the unborn. And we need to be aware of what the enemy believes. What's their worldview? What ideas do they hold? Because ideas have consequences. And bad ideas have victims. And nowhere is that more true today than on the issue of abortion. But I've found in my nearly decades speaking publicly on this issue that most people who identify as pro-life don't fully understand what their opponents believe beyond maybe a surface-level understanding, and they don't know how to interact with those premises and those positions and those assumptions that the pro-abortion advocate holds. So I want to dive into that this evening. I want to talk about everything that's wrong with being pro-choice. I'm going to wax a little bit more philosophical and dive a little bit more deeper than I would maybe in a high school presentation because I've been told that you guys are pretty pro-life and you're pretty grounded in the moral law. And so I want to dive a little bit deeper with you this evening. Roseanne Barr, who's this alleged comedian that I'm sure you're aware of, had this HBO special from years ago. And she chose to go after pro-lifers in a very sort of disgusting ad hominem way. Here's what she said. She said, you know who else I can't stand is them people that are anti-abortion. I hate them. They're ugly, old, geeky, hideous men. They just don't want nobody to have an abortion because they want you to keep spitting out kids so they can molest them. Now, horrific, disgusting thing to say, but pretty par for the course actually, amongst pro-abortion advocates that regularly participate in personal ad hominem attacks against pro-lifers because they don't have a substantive argument to offer in response to the case for life that pro-life individuals offer. Because our case is both scientifically and philosophically sound. Now, suppose she's right. Suppose Roseanne Barr is right in this demeaning, disgusting attack against her perceived character of pro-lifers. You know, there's this law school saying, it says, when you have the facts, pound the facts. When you don't have the facts, pound the table and do it loudly. In short, make a big ruckus, make a big scene, make it all about the rhetoric and the, your perception of your opponent's character or lack thereof. Everything wrong with being pro-choice. Specifically, I want to dive in to the five bad ways that people argue about abortion. And my hope is that at the end of this evening, you will have five points keeping in the front of your mind when you enter in a conversation on abortion, you'll be able to identify any flaw in the pro-abortion advocate's argument within one of these five mistakes. I've taken every mistake at the street level 
in debates over abortion and putting them into five fatal flaws so that you're primed to engage and you have the philosophical firepower you need to be a pro-life ninja flipping around demolishing abortion arguments wherever you find them. This is significant, brothers and sisters, because there's a whole lot of table pounding going out there today, isn't there? And that's become increasingly true in today's political discourse. So before we jump into what's wrong with Roseanne Barr's case and the other primary flaws in the arguments for abortion, I'm going to briefly review the pro-life case. This would typically be like a 30-minute, 35-minute talk. I'm going to do it very briefly. I have full-length talks and episodes on my podcast available for you. Very pro-life 101 case. But let's briefly review the pro-life case. The pro-life case goes like this. Scientifically, we know that the science of embryology teaches us that from the moment of conception, you were a distinct living and whole human being. Distinct because you weren't part of your mother's body, because when women are pregnant, they don't have 20 fingers and 20 toes, two brains, two hearts, two different DNA codes. Oh, and if she's pregnant with a boy, someone's awake. Pregnant women do not have male genitalia, so the child's distinct distinct. The child is living because dead things don't grow, and the unborn child meets all the requirements for a living thing. And the unborn child is whole from the moment of conception, not a hole in the ground, W-H-O-L-E. What does it mean to be a whole human being? Don't confuse wholeness with development. Don't confuse wholeness with having realized certain cognitive functions that you will develop over time. Does that make sense? Don't confuse those two words. A whole human being is simply one who already has everything they need to realize their full growth and development as a participating member of the human species, even if we can't see him or her yet. Everything that they need to look like you is present at the moment of conception. It's just a difference in degree. Just like the difference in the development between a toddler and a grandpa is significantly greater than the difference of development between the embryo and the toddler. But that doesn't mean that grandpas can kill their grandchildren because grandparents are more developed. The difference in development between the embryo and the toddler is actually less. But the child already has everything they need. That's what the science teaches us. That's not a pro-life case. That's not a religious case. That's a scientific case. And we knew that that's what the embryology taught us before Roe versus Wade was decided in 1973. So the unborn child is fully human. That's the first pillar of the case for life. The second pillar is to argue that the unborn child is a person, to use the enemy's language. They say the unborn child may be a human, but not a person. We would never separate those terms. Every human is a person. And that's the only thing we have in common, right? Is our human nature. So the only way to ground natural rights is to ground it in the only thing we have in common, a human nature. But the pro-abortion advocate says, okay, pro-lifer, I wasn't ready for you to quote the embryology to me. Okay, fine. The unborn child is biologically human, but I mean, come on, it's not a person. Right, that's what racists said about blacks and Nazis said about Jews. Thank you very much for your historical bigotry. When will we learn that all humans are persons? So after we make the scientific case for life, unfortunately, we also have to make a case for the equal value and right to life of the child. And we make that case philosophically by arguing that there is no meaningful or value-giving difference between the embryonic human being that you once were and the adult that you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Does that make sense? 
I'll say that in an even shorter sentence. There's no value-giving difference between you, the unborn human, and you, the born human, that makes it okay to kill you, the unborn human. Now, there's obviously differences between embryos and teenagers. I'm not saying there's no differences. I'm saying none of them are relevant to your moral worth or your right to life. And the only differences are summarized in the acronym SLED, Size, Level of Development, Environment, and Dependency. The unborn child is smaller, less developed, located in a different environment, and more dependent than their born counterparts. However, look around the room and look at one another. <clears throat> Do we have size in common? Do we have level of development in common? <clears throat> Excuse me. Do we have environment or location in common? No. Many times when I speak in churches, it's being live-streamed, which means people are watching in different states. Very different environment. And do we have dependency in common? No, if you're a teenager and you're still uh, uh, dependent on your parents to pay some of the bills, you're more dependent. So notice, the unborn child differs from us in the same ways that we differ from one another. So if those differences, size, level of development, environment, and dependency, are adequate justifications to kill the unborn, they are also adequate justifications to kill the born because we differ from one another as born people in the same way the unborn differs from us. There's your pro-life case, scientifically and philosophically sound. Have I cited Bible verses to make my case? No, but my case is still biblically sound because I'm communicating biblical truths, namely that all human beings are intrinsically valuable from the moment of conception because they have a human nature, and of course because we're image bearers of God. Okay. There's your pro-life case. We reviewed that. Do the comments by Roseanne Barr refute my case in any way, shape, or form? No. She just attacks her perceived character of pro-lifers. But instead of responding to that argument and offering a counter-argument, she says, you're a man. You have the wrong genitalia, so shut up, all you men. You don't get the right to be pro-life because of your genitalia, which you had no control over. But arguments don't have sexual organs. When I offer an argument as to why everyone should be pro-life, and a pro-choicer says, yeah, but you have a penis, don't you? I say, you're a sexist. You're discounting my argument and my beliefs on this matter because of my genitalia rather than offering a substantive response as to why my argument fails. So at the street level, critics of the pro-life view or the pro-abortion advocate, the pro-choice individual, make five common mistakes. And I want to go through each of these mistakes so you're aware of what they are, you understand what the other side believes, and you're positioned to respond persuasively and winsomely. The first mistake is this. The other side assumes rather than argues. They assume certain premises and ideas, but they never argue for them. You know, C.S. Lewis once said that the most dangerous ideas in a society are not the ones being argued for. They're the ones being assumed. And you know what happens when you assume, right? But assumed premises, especially when undetected, can destroy a nation. We once had a very bigoted assumption in this culture and society that our black brothers and sisters were not fully human or weren't entitled to the rights of personhood. That was a very dangerous assumption, and it had a lot of really bad consequences. Well, the pro-abortion advocate merely assumes within the course of their rhetoric and their argumentation that the unborn child is not fully human or somehow not deserving of the rights of personhood that born people take for granted because they weren't aborted and I call that born privilege. But this logical fallacy is called begging the question. When you assume 
rather than argue, when you assume the very thing that you must prove for your argument to work in the first place. So let me explain what I mean by this. Does anyone have a younger brother? Okay. Have you stopped beating him yet? Now notice, any way she responds, she's kind of stuck, right? If she says, no, I haven't stopped beating him yet, she's admitting that she beats her brother. If she says, yes, I have stopped beating him, she's admitting that she used to beat her brother. So what have I assumed? That she beats her brother. What am I trying to prove? The same thing, that she beats her brother. So I've assumed the very thing that I must prove for my argument to work in the first place. This is the fundamental assumption of the pro-abortion advocate on the issue of abortion. They merely assume within the course of their argumentation that the unborn child is not fully human or not a person, whatever that means. But do they ever argue for it? Do they ever make a case as to why the unborn is a human non-person or a subhuman or untermensch, to quote the Nazis, subhuman? No, they don't offer an argument for it. They merely assume it. What are some examples? How do we see this play out in the issue of abortion? Uh, you know the argument from privacy, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. Shouldn't have had those Starbucks uh, egg bites. Hey, pro-lifer, you need to shut up on the issue of abortion. You know why? Because that's a privacy issue. Only women and their boyfriends, partners, husbands should be making that decision in the privacy of their own homes. How dare you intrude in that private medical family decision? Very well. You put on a smile, and you graciously ask this question to your pro-abortion friend. <clears throat> Should we allow parents to kill toddlers as long as they do so in the privacy of their own homes? You know, that's a privacy issue, pro-choicer. How dare you intrude into the private living room conversations of parents as they contemplate whether they're going to drown Timmy in the bathtub after his bath? How dare you intrude in that private family matter? Now, what would your pro-choice friend respond to if you asked him that? Oh, you sick pro-lifer! I knew you were just pro-birth, you sicko. And you go, what, 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 we can't kill toddlers? I thought that was a privacy issue. And they go, of course not. And we say, why? And they say, because the toddler's a human being, you sicko. Oh. So the humanity that you're granting to the toddler in your argument, or in my argument, you're denying to the unborn child in your argument for abortion. So what have they assumed about the unborn? That they're not fully human. <laughs> or that somehow they are human, but they don't get human rights. That the toddler does, but they've never made a case for the non-personhood of the unborn. Here's another argument from privacy, forcing morality. You know this one, right? They say, you can't legislate pro-life laws because you're imposing your Christian theocentric religion onto the rest of the country. Don't you know there's a separation of church and state? You can't force your morality onto women. And we say, um, <clears throat> can I ask you a question? Isn't the mother forcing her morality on her unborn child who she has scheduled to die? And they go, oh, no, that's different. That's different. Why is that different? Because you've assumed the unborn child is not fully human, but you've never argued for it. How about this one? No one knows when life begins, right? So abortion should remain legal. No one can really agree. You know, there's not consensus on that question. So abortion should be legal through point of birth. But to argue that no one knows when life begins and therefore abortion should be legal through all nine months, is to assume that life doesn't start until birth, right? Which is the very thing the pro-choice individual must prove for his argument to work in the first place, that life doesn't start until birth. So they've assumed that life doesn't start until birth, but they've never proved it. One more example of begging the question or assuming the very thing you must prove, back alley abortions. You heard this argument before? 
Hey, pro-lifer, if you get your dream and abortion's made illegal, women are going to be forced into dangerous back alley abortion clinics, and you're going to see bloodshed like you've never seen before. Do you want to be responsible for that, you sick bigot? Now, by the way, from a purely statistical standpoint, it's complete bunk. It's a total lie, okay? The pro-abortion movement, along with Bernard Nathanson, who was performing illegal abortions in the 70s, and then was one of the first major abortionists in this country after its legalization, later became pro-life after he killed tens of, tens of thousands of unborn children, including his own daughter, an abortion he committed on his own daughter through his wife's vaginal canal, became pro-life, repented, had a tortured soul for the rest of his life, and tried to make up for what he had done. He admitted in his book, Aborting America, I believe in 1979, that he completely made up fake figures about how many women were dying from back alley illegal abortion clinics. He would say, we would say that tens of thousands of women were dying each year from illegal back alley abortion clinics. And he says in the book, I, frankly, I admit that, that those were total lies. In reality, we knew it was only a couple hundred maybe, or less than a hundred. But that statistic was very useful for our political agenda. So from a purely statistical matter, it's complete bunk. But here's their claim. Women are going to die from back alley abortions unless we keep it legal. But this is tantamount to saying that because some people die trying to kill others, the state should make it safe and legal for them to do so. Because some people die trying to kill others, the state should actually make it safe and legal for them to do that. So <clears throat> you repeat back to your pro-abortion friend, okay, great. It, it, totally. If that makes sense, then I guess this makes sense as well. You know, we really need to legalize bank robbery because sometimes bank robbers get shot or harmed in the process of robbing banks, both hurting and harming innocent individuals and breaking the law doing so. And so, you know, that last bank robber we heard about recently, you know, he got shot in the leg by an uh, by a armed civilian and his other bank robber friend ran away with the cash, leading his, leaving his bank robber friend bleeding out on the sidewalk. He almost died! from robbing a bank, so we have to legalize bank robbery because you don't want bank robbers bleeding out and dying in back alley bank robbers. My goodness. And they go, what are you talking about? Or how about this? Let's legalize school shootings because some school shooters are shot by campus security in the process of trying to kill others. Hey, school shooters' lives matter too, man. And the pro-choicer goes, oh, I don't really like that. But those people are getting harmed or killed in the process of trying to harm or kill others. Just like the mother is getting harmed or killed in the process of trying to kill others, namely her own offspring. So if they don't accept that reasoning applied to other moral scenarios, but they do accept it as applied to abortion, <clears throat> what does that tell you about them? They have assumed that the unborn child is not fully human or not deserving of the same rights that they grant to born people. Did they ever argue for it? No, they merely assumed it. This is the first and probably most common mistake that you will find in pro-abortion arguments. And to expose that assumption, the assumption that they're assuming rather than arguing, you merely apply that argument and replace the unborn child with a toddler or a born person or an elderly patient and repeat their argument back to them and ask them if they would accept their same arguments for killing unborn as applied to killing born people. When they say no, you have just proven that they've assumed the unborn child is not fully human. The second mistake is they confuse objective claims with subjective claims, okay? And to explain what I mean by this, I assume you know what these words mean, but it's always good to start with first premises and definitions. An objective claim is a claim that's either true or false. 
It's not a preference claim. It's not a claim about the individual. It's, about a, it's a claim about the nature of reality. That's an objective claim. A subjective claim is a claim about the subject. You're the subject, right? So when I say vanilla ice cream is better than chocolate ice cream, and if you say, no, you're wrong, Seth, that's okay, right? We can disagree, because it's not an objective claim. An objective claim would be something like, it's always wrong to torture toddlers for fun. And I would pray to God that no one in this room would stand up and go, <clears throat> Seth, excuse me, um, maybe it's wrong for you to torture toddlers for fun, but don't impose your anti-toddler position, anti-toddler uh, torturing position on me, okay? Just let me live my truth. Right? No one would say that because we understand that it's wrong to torture toddlers for fun, period, whether you disagree with me or not. And if you think it's okay to torture toddlers for fun, um, you're wrong. Right, that's an objective claim. But pro-lifers are not claiming that abortion is wrong because we dislike it. Right? That's not, pro-lifers are not saying, I oppose abortion because it gives me a queasy stomach. Because I don't like the idea of it. That's not our claim. Our claim is that abortion is objectively wrong at all times and in all places, whether you like it or not and whether you agree with me or not. Because it violates rational moral principles. The rational moral principle being, it is always wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings without proper justification. But when we say abortion is wrong, do you know what the other side often hears, what half of our countrymen hear? Oh, pro-lifers don't like abortion. So they've conflated our objective claim with a subjective preference claim. Hence the bumper sticker, don't like abortion? Don't have one. As if the right or wrongness of abortion is purely dependent on whether you like it or not. Try this. Don't like spousal abuse? Don't beat your wife. And we'd go, whoa, what? I mean, spousal abuse is wrong whether I like it or not. Because that's an objective claim about the nature of reality. But treating every moral claim as merely a preference claim that's only true for me or only true for you is what we call relativism, which is really the bastard child of postmodernism. Relativism says that what's right and wrong is completely up for us to decide, either individually or as a society. And this is why you'll hear people say things like this. Uh, abortion is a constitutional right. It's been decided on. We have decided. As if a society can just choose immoral behaviors, call them good, and they become good. This is what relativism says. There are no objective standards of morality. There's no standard we're all beholden to. We are our own standard. In short, we are gods, and we decide what's right and what's wrong according to our own personal preferences. So they confuse the objective claim and argument against abortion by the pro-lifer as merely a preference claim, and you need to be aware of this. I need to briefly go through with how this fails, though, so you're aware of this, because, again, relativism is the fundamental worldview behind the pro-abortion movement. That's why they say don't legislate your religion on me. We all decide our own truth. So let me go through exactly why relativism fails so you know how to respond to people who say, oh, that's fine, Sally, that you want to be pro-life. That's fine. Just, just don't tell me to be pro-life. Okay. Relativism fails for several reasons. Firstly, relativism is self-defeating, meaning it can't live with its own rules. 
It's self-defeating. And before I explain what I mean by this, I want to show you a brief clip that's, that's pretty funny, and, and it puts relativism in a, sort of a very comedic interaction. So this is an interaction between just this dude in the audience at an event who asked Deepak Chopra a question. Now, if you don't know who Deepak Chopra is, he's kind of this new age, like, scientist, alternative medicine dude, right? And it's really just another religion. And he's on stage, actually, I think with, like, Mark Driscoll and these other people. I don't know what the event was. A very eclectic group on stage. And this is this interaction that really puts relativism in a comedic uh, frame. So we'll show you this brief clip. I want to take another question. There's a gentleman in there with a red shirt back there. He's had his hand up for a while. Come up to the microphone. Uh, my, my question's for, for Deepak and, and uh, the bishop. Now, you stated before that all belief is a cover-up for insecurity, right? Mm -hmm. Do you believe that? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> I see. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, so if you didn't catch that, <clears throat> Deepak Chopra was obviously lecturing or explaining that he believed all belief was a cover-up for insecurity. So the guy says, do you believe that? And he says, yeah. So therefore, he believes that all belief is a cover-up for insecurity. Well, that itself would be a belief. So how can I trust you that you're not just covering up your own insecurities because you believe that all belief is a cover-up for insecurity? In short, that argument commits intellectual suicide. It can't live by its own rules, and that's a very funny example of relativism. Let me sort of play this out in different statements. Tell me what's wrong with these statements. Um, <clears throat> my brother is an only child. I cannot speak a word in English. Don't take anybody's advice on anything. And there is no truth. Is it objectively true that there is no truth? Because if it's objectively true that there is no truth, then how was I able to reach a woke level of realizing that there is no truth? I would have had to step out of the reality that there is no truth to access truth to make the statement that there is no truth. Do you see, relativism can't live by its own rules. <clears throat> and you just need to be aware of the flaws of relativism because it is the fundamental worldview assumption of the pro-abortion left that leads them to tell you in response to your objective argument against abortion, well, that's just true for you. Relativism commits suicide because it violates what we call the law of non-contradiction. The law of non-contradiction says two opposing ideas cannot both be true at the same time and in the same way. The second flaw of relativism is that relativism can't actually say why anything is wrong, including intolerance, the very thing that the left hates, right? You're so intolerant, you pro-life conservative bigot. Just let people kill their babies through abortion, right? They hate intolerance, but they can't explain why intolerance is wrong because we just respond, I'm just living according to my own truth. And my own truth is that I should judge you for having abortions and try to make it illegal for you to kill the unborn. But they can't explain why anything is truly wrong because if morals and morality writ large are relative to the individual or to the culture, then there is no ethical difference between Adolf Hitler and Mother Teresa. There's no ethical difference between them. They just had different preferences, right? One liked to kill, the other liked to feed people. But who are we to judge? So relativism can't say why anything is truly wrong. The third reason relativism fails is that it inevitably makes moral judgments, 
Meaning relativism ends up judging you anyways, as it says that nobody should judge. If the relativist thinks it's wrong to judge, how can he say that pro-lifers are mistaken in the first place? Because pro-choicers necessarily judge us when they say, you're wrong, pro-lifer. You're wrong. You should be pro-choice. Are you judging my pro-life beliefs? Are you imposing your pro-choice beliefs on me? And they're like, yeah, yeah, totally. I, I thought you said we were supposed to be tolerant. I thought you said we weren't supposed to judge. So relativism ends up making moral judgments as it says it's wrong to make moral ju judgments. Whenever a relativist tells you you shouldn't force your views on others, ask them one question. Why not? Any answer they give you will be an example of them imposing their beliefs on you. The fourth reason relativism fails is that relativism is not neutral, right? Relativism claims to be neutral, right? Because it says there is no truth. I, I just dwell in the gray area. I'm neutral on these questions. And I think the government should remain neutral on the question of abortion by not legislating on it. So I don't have a different morality than you, pro-lifer. I'm just neutral. That's the claim of relativism. But relativism claims to be tolerant by taking the position of neutrality, especially when it comes to controversial issues like abortion, right? They insist that the government should not legislate on these intensely personal decisions. Have you ever noticed that their neutrality is incredibly selective? Their defense of moral neutrality on controversial issues is totally selective. What do I mean by this? You'd be hard-pressed to find a relativist who believes the government should remain neutral on the question of same-sex marriage, on the question of sex reassignment surgeries, or on the question of keeping adoption strictly for heterosexual married opposite-sex parents. What pro-choicer would say, oh yeah, oh, government needs to be neutral on it. No, they've demanded for the last 20 years that the government legislate on those options. Well, that's not neutrality. Moral neutrality is the greatest myth of secular progressivism. Because on morals such as slavery, the Holocaust, and abortion, there is no such thing as moral neutrality. Slavery was once an incredibly divisive issue for Americans. So was the tolerant position to refuse to take a position? Oh, we, we don't take a position on, the, on the, the sale and purchase and whipping and enslavement of African image bearers of God. We just don't take a position on that. We just allow slave owners and plantation owners to decide their own standards of morality. Would that be a tolerant position? To be morally neutral on slavery was to be anything but neutral. And had the government refused to legislate on the question of slavery they would actually be directly, directly supporting slavery in the slave trade by giving them free reign to operate however they want while they claim that they're neutral. And this is what led Dietrich Bonhoeffer to once say, not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Silence in the face of evil is itself evil, and God will not hold us guiltless. So relativism is not neutral because it says that either societies or individual people get to decide their own moral codes without any external or objective standard. In other words, anything goes, and no one can or should have the right to judge such decisions. This is hardly neutral. Those are the four reasons why relativism fails. However, the reason why I think many, particularly millennials and Gen Zs, believe that abortion is merely a preference subjective issue that each individual should decide is because the majority of those individuals have never seen 
what abortion is and does to the unborn child. I'm very fond of saying that it's easy to be pro-choice if you never have to look at what that choice looks like. It's also very easy to be pro-choice when you're not the one being aborted. So every pro-choice individual is very grateful that their mother wasn't exercising her right to choose. So I think it's very important that we offer to show people the reality of what abortion does to the unborn child. Why? To awaken their moral intuitions. To prick their collective conscience. And to blow away the bigotry of moral neutrality, which really ends up condoning the mistreatment and murder of innocent human beings in the womb. So we are going to give you an opportunity to show a very, see a very short video clip, it's about 55 seconds, of what abortion is and does to the unborn child. Now, this is completely optional. Nobody is being coerced or pressured into watching anything. You have complete freedom to opt out of this clip if you'd like. In fact, I put instrumental music over the clip. So when you hear the music, you can close your eyes if you'd like. And when the music stops, you can open your eyes and you will have opted out of the entire presentation. I don't want anyone to feel like I didn't give you a chance to exercise your liberty or autonomy to watch something that you would have chosen to opt out of. So you have complete freedom to make that decision. However, we are gonna show you this clip because even amongst pro-life Christians, very few of us have ever seen what God has to look at 2,700 times a day in this country as his children, who he is in the process of knitting together, have their limbs torn off of their bodies. So if you'd like to step out of the room, you can, or you can just close your eyes or look down at your feet, but we'll play this short video. So every one of those children was killed legally <clears throat> in this country. In case you don't know, abortion is legal through all nine months of pregnancy for any reason or no reason at all because health has been defined so broadly that you can drive a Mack truck through it. So if a woman says this pregnancy <clears throat> is threatening my health because I got in a fight with my husband or I'm stressed out, the physician who is the abortionist who has a financial incentive to accept her definition of health in order to receive the blood money to kill her child will accept that definition. So every one of those children was killed legally and with the exception of that final clip, all of those children were killed in the first trimester, as you saw, the first three months. Now, 90% of abortions are performed in the first trimester in this country. And of each of the trimesters, did you know that there's the most public support for abortion amongst Americans in the first trimester? As the child gets older and larger, more Americans reject or don't support abortion at those stages, which doesn't really make sense because it's the same child. It's like saying, you know, it's like saying, don't kill one-year-olds, or don't kill three-year-olds, but kill one-year-olds. It's the same child, they're just developing. But we start seeing ourselves more in the child who looks more like us, so Americans get more uncomfortable with later-term abortions. But you know how they defend abortion in the first trimester in particular, right? Blob of tissue. The pregnancy. And they can get away with that because the mother can't feel the child kicking yet. It is very small, and it's easy to tell that lie. Well, how human did those children look at nine and 10 weeks? Actually, I think the first one you saw was seven or eight weeks. This happens at the tune of a million a year, friends. And we fund it. And thanks to this administration, your tax dollars now fund that overseas. In many, majority, black countries. Wow, but I thought the Democratic Party was the anti-racism party. And now they're pushing abortion in black countries because that's the woke thing to do. I don't have time for that. That's a lecture for another time. 
We don't show you this imagery to shame or condemn you. And if you're here this evening and abortion is part of your life story, man or woman, I just want to remind you of what I believe Jesus would say if he were here bodily preaching this sermon. And I believe he would say this, that he is just as eager to forgive the sin of abortion as any other sin. Abortion is not a blacklist sin that removes you from the grace of God. And if you want evidence of that, brothers and sisters, I'd point you to the story of King David. A man after God's own heart, right? Yeah, he was also a peeping Tom who abandoned a battle from his army because he was lazy and is on his roof getting drunk and checking out women taking showers. Good job, David. Well, decided that enjoying her visually was not enough, so he slept with her, impregnated her, and then murdered her husband. And he's in the hall of faith. If that doesn't encourage you, I don't know what will. But you see, when the prophet Nathan confronted David regarding his sin, after briefly justifying it, as we kind of all have a tendency of doing, he repents, hits his knees. God accepts his repentance as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to him, renews him, uses him mightily, calls him a man after his own heart, greatest king of Israel. But friends, there were still consequences to David's sin. He needs to get off scot-free. You know God struck his child dead, right? David arranged the death of an innocent human being in order to hide and cover up his sexual sin. Maybe that's why you got an abortion. You arranged the death of an innocent human being in order to hide and cover up your sexual sin. But whether it was for that reason or another, the end result was the same. A murdered innocent human being created in the image of God. In the face of that, in the face of facing his sin, King David, King David says, my son will not return to me, but I will go to him. So do you know what that means for you if this is part of your story? It means that not only is Jesus faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness and use you mightily and turn your beauty into ashes and use you to help where you used to hurt like King David, but it also means that if you accept that gospel, gospel of grace and repent, you're going to see your baby in heaven again one day. And they are seated on the lap of Christ waiting to welcome you with an eternal embrace. But that hope, brothers and sisters, is only available in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So hear that and receive that. And if you need to start a journey of healing, know that myself, your pastoral staff, and the ministries represented here this evening would love to speak with you. But... I will have nothing to do with the cover-up campaign of the pro-abortion left that refuses to allow women to even look at the ultrasound screen when they go in for an appointment, much less watch their child get ripped limb from limb or watch them rearrange the baby parts of that child on the table to make sure they didn't leave any floating baby body parts in mom's uterus after the abortion because that would make her susceptible to sepsis and death. Ephesians 5.11 says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. And I don't think there's a more hidden deed of darkness in the world today than the issue of abortion. That doesn't mean there aren't others. It just means there's none greater than that. Showing individuals what abortion does to our preborn neighbors will awaken their moral intuitions to abandon this silly concept and idea that you can be pro-life, but it's okay for me to be pro-choice. You can be pro-life, but just don't tell me what to do with my body. That takes a moral, objective debate and turns it into picking your favorite of ice cream as if it's merely a preference issue. So that's the second mistake of the pro-abortion movement is that they confuse objective claims with subjective claims. The third mistake is that they attack rather than argue. 
and this was obviously indicative of Roseanne Barr. They resort to ad hominem attacks against you as pro-lifers rather than attacking your argument. Shocker, and I bet you get this all the time on social media and maybe with your coworkers, friends, or family members. So anytime someone attacks you personally because of your pro-life beliefs, rather than telling them, no, I'm not, I'm not that thing, I'm not, I'm really loving, I really am, rather than granting them their premise and somehow entertaining that bigotry, simply ask them this question, brothers and sisters. Suppose what you say about me is true. Okay, let's grant that. Does that in any way refute my case that the unborn are fully human? and that elective abortion is wrong? Of course not. <laughs> They're ignoring your argument and attacking you because they can't contend with your argument. They're trying to take you down a rabbit trail to distract you from the main thing because they can't contend on the main thing because our main thing is a scientifically and philosophically sound case for life. What are some examples of this that you see in the pro-abortion debate? It's hypocritical for you pro-lifers to oppose abortion unless you're adopting all the babies, housing all of the mothers, paying for all of their health care and groceries, and paying off all their debt. You can't even be pro-life unless you're doing all of those things. In fact, your pro-life argument is complete bunk unless you're adopting all the babies and housing all of the mothers, right? So they say that we're hypocrites because we don't do enough for the child after it's born, and hence you are told you're a pro-birther. You don't give two squats about that child after it's born. Anyone heard that before? By the way, I like to immediately turn this on its head and repeat this back to them. So they say, they tell us we can't oppose abortion unless we are willing to care for the woman and the child, right? I tell them, you can't support abortion unless you're willing to abort the child. They're saying that we aren't showing the courage of our convictions because we're just espousing ideas but not putting flesh to it. Very well, you're just espousing ideas and not putting flesh to it. You say you're pro-choice, how many babies are you murdering? How many women's choices and rights are you protecting? Of course, very few individuals who say they're pro-choice would actually perform the abortions, huh? And those who would, the majority of them would stop after one day after they had to rearrange the body parts back on the tray after they dismembered the child. So you can repeat that argument right back to them. However, here's the moral flaw with that argument. This is tantamount to saying that you can't oppose me beating my wife unless you're willing to marry her. You can't oppose me beating my toddler unless you're willing to adopt him. Now, the pro-choice would probably say, dude, <laughs> I'm not going to adopt your kid, but stop hitting him, right? I'm not going to marry your wife, but you probably shouldn't punch her. And that anti-spousal abuse position or that anti-toddler torturing position is a valid position in and of itself, standing alone, Right? Even if that pro-choice individual wouldn't say, okay, okay, the only way for me to show that I'm actually against torturing toddlers is to adopt your child. No, your position is totally valid, even if you don't adopt the toddlers being abused. Do you see what I mean? So even if pro-lifers say, I oppose abortion, I'm going to campaign and lobby to end abortion, I'm going to get politicians elected who will oppose abortion, I'll donate to pregnancy centers, I'll care for that child, and once it's born, I'm out. Even if we said that, that doesn't make the pro-life argument wrong. Because the pro-life argument is that it's always wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Abortion does that, therefore abortion is wrong. Do you see? 
But the reality is, is that we are dedicated, dedicated to caring for the woman and the child. And the pro-life movement has always shown this. Did you know that there are more than twice as many pregnancy resource centers as abortion clinics in this country? There are more than double. According to Pregnancy Help News, there are between 2,700 and 3,200 pregnancy resource centers in America, while there are roughly 1,700 abortion clinics or abortion providers in this country. And pregnancy resource centers provide services including prenatal care, STI testing, STI treatment, ultrasounds, childbirth classes, labor coaching, midwife services, lactation consultations, nutrition consultations, social work, abstinence education, parenting classes, material assistance, post-abortion counseling, and often housing for women who don't have a place to stay. Does that sound like just pro-birth? Does that sound like a pro-life movement that says, once you push that baby out, I'm out of here? Of course not. But I just want you to be aware that even if that was true of us, it doesn't defeat the pro-life argument. So start with that and then provide the data. By the way, the Catholic Church, which is pretty much the single most influential pro-life institution in the country, makes the largest financial, institutional, and personal commitments to charitable causes writ large of any private source in the United States. And they're the biggest institution within the pro-life movement. These include ministries like AIDS ministries, healthcare education, housing services, care for the elderly, disabled, and immigrants. So it's a complete bunk argument. Okay. What's one other way that they attack us rather than argue? All right, you men, you ready? Listen up. You men, shut up on abortion because you have the wrong genitalia. And this was Roseanne Barr's argument, right? That men have no right to talk on the issue of abortion because they were born as men. So men shouldn't have any say about abortion because it's purely a woman's issue. Your first response to this should be, Awesome, good to meet a sexist. Thank you for your sexism. By the way, can you imagine if I told a pro-choice woman, yeah, pro-choice women, they actually can't oppose when 40-year-old men rape eight-year-old boys because that's a big boy issue. That's a male issue. It only involves males. It only involves humans with male genitalia. So you actually, pro-choice women and feminists, you actually can't speak. You need to shut up every time a 40-year-old man rapes an eight-year-old boy. That's a male issue. Can, can you, you want to just entertain in your mind how do you think pro-choice feminists would respond to that if I said that? They'd probably label me a sexist, and rightly so. Rightly so. That would be a deeply sexist thing of me to say. But when they say the same thing to pro-life men, that we have to shut up because we have the wrong genitalia, that's just speaking truth to power? No, that's blatant sexism. Rather than engaging with my argument, you say, wait, what's your genitalia? Oh yeah, your argument's bunk. I can't think of something more sexist than that. As Frank Beckwith, a ph phenomenal philosopher and Christian says, arguments don't have sexual organs. Lastly, if men should shut up on the issue of abortion and should have no voice, including a legislative voice or a judicial voice, then we should overturn Roe versus Wade immediately because nine men were on the Supreme Court in 1973 when that court went 7-2 in support of Roe versus Wade. So I guess pro-choice, we have to retroactively overturn Roe v. Wade until we have nine women on the court, but we have to wait until we get nine women. So in the meantime, we have to overturn Roe v. Wade until we get that, right? And they go, oh, no, I love Roe versus Wade. Oh, so what you really mean is that pro-life men should shut up, but pro-choice men are awesome. So it's not about genitalia. It's about ideological uniformity. If you don't look exactly like them and believe exactly what they say, then you can go to hell. Quite literally, that's what they believe. Also, have you ever seen how the pro-choice movement treats pro-life women? Oh, yeah, not very good. Wait, but I, I thought this was a woman's issue. 
Oh, look, they only attack people who disagree with them, regardless of gender. Shocker. Yes, it's time to wake up. This is about ideological uniformity and not about genitalia. Well, that's the third mistake they make, is they attack rather than argue. Fourthly, they hide behind hard cases like rape. That's their fourth mistake. They hide behind hard cases to justify their position in all cases. Okay, here's what I mean by this. They say that we need to keep abortion legal because if a woman's raped, right, she shouldn't be forced to have that child. She shouldn't be forced to bear the rapist child because she didn't consent to sex. Now, obviously, this is a horrific act of violence. I support full legal penalty being brought against rapists. Personally, just speaking for myself, I would support castrations or life in jail, okay? Now, do rapists get castrations or even the death penalty in America? No, they don't. Unless they rape and murder women, they don't get the death penalty. And we rarely carry out capital punishment in this country anyways. So if you rape a woman, you don't get the death penalty. I support harsher legal penalties being brought against rapists. And we have to have compassion and love for those who are the victims of moral male degenerates who should never see the light of day again. However, does that mean that abortion should be legal in the case of rape? Well, their argument is a completely sham argument. Here's why it's a total sham, and it doesn't reflect what they really believe. The pro-choice philosophy, their, their belief, their worldview, is not that women have a moral right to abortion when a rapist impregnates them. That's not their belief. Their belief is that a, a woman has a moral right to abortion through all nine months of pregnancy for any reason or no reason at all. It's not only when a woman gets raped. They support it for any reason at all. So what are they doing? They're hiding behind rape victims to make themselves look more compassionate. They're using rape victims as a human shield to make their pro-choice position look really loving. And you can expose this, by the way, by asking your pro-choice friends this. <clears throat> hey, um, awesome. Hey, did you know that uh, Guttmacher Institute, which is Planned Parenthood's statistical research branch, reported that in 2004, half of a percent of the annual abortions were performed on women having identified being raped. So are you willing to join me in fighting to end the 99.5% of all other abortions which aren't being performed in cases of rape? And what's the pro-choicer say? Oh, no, 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 I believe abortion is a fundamental human right. Oh, well then why are you appealing to the exception to argue for the norm? That's not your belief. Your belief is for any reason or no reason at all. So first you have to be aware of that. It's a sham argument. The second problem with this argument is that it's a complete perversion of justice. Because in what other circumstance would a pro-abortion advocate accept the murder of a child because the child's mother was brutally abused? What if she gave birth to the child and when he was two years old, she was getting beaten up on a regular basis and the child was getting beaten up on a regular basis by some degenerate live-in boyfriend? Could she kill the toddler? because she was going through too much trauma to raise that child, and maybe the bruises on the toddler's face from her degenerate boyfriend would remind her of the trauma she had to go through when he beat her up, and so it's compassionate to kill the toddler to spare the mother the trauma associated with continuing to raise the child. Woo! Compassion! No, no pro-choicer supports that. So it's a, it's a complete perversion of justice. <clears throat> but then they say, well, what if the baby looks like the rapist? You've heard this one, right? Pro-lifer, I thought you said you were loving. You're going to force her to bear a child <clears throat> who might resemble the rapist, and then every time she looks at that child, she's going to be reminded of the trauma she went through. By the way, it's a deeply offensive assumption, because I know many individuals who have been raped, have carried a term, have raised that child. Some of them look like the rapist, and they love that child to heaven. It's a very deeply offensive 
suggestion. However, let's run with it. Let's take that argument that they've just offered and say, oh my gosh, pro-choicer, you're totally right. So we need to let all babies conceived in rape be born because maybe 50% of them will actually look like mom. And if they look like mom, it won't remind mom of the rape. But we don't want to unnecessarily abort any babies in the womb who were conceived in rape who will end up looking like mom because then we're killing won't remind mom of the trauma she went through. Okay, pro-choicer, you're totally right. But you know, pro-choicer, I mean, facial structures take a little bit to develop, right? Everyone said my son looked like me at birth, and then my wife, and now me again. So let's give him two years, and then at his second birthday, right after he shoves the cake into his mouth, we'll say, all right, does he look like rapist dad or does he look like mom? If he looks like rapist dad, we'll just chop his head off. We'll just throw him in the freeway. Because that's compa- I, I am a compassionate pro-choicer. Because I don't want mom to be going through trauma associated with her rape of a two-year-old that looks like rapist. But then for the child that ends up looking like mom at the second birthday, we'll let the child live. That's compassionate, baby. Oh, yeah. No pro-choicer supports that. So listen, pro-choicers do not support killing babies conceived in rape after they're born. They only support killing babies conceived in rape before they're born. So what happened during that six-inch journey through the birth canal? during childbirth. Oh, do, oh, you guys don't know? The fetus fairy flies up and sprinkles magical personhood-conferring fairy dust on the child. This, this, con- this personhood-conferring fairy dust, it's just in the lining of the uterus. And so when that baby comes out of the birth canal, it becomes a person. And when that last toe leaves the vaginal canal, oh my gosh, it's a person! Here's your constitutional rights to life, liberty, and property. Ridiculous. They're hiding behind rape victims to make themselves look more Compassionate. Lastly, it's worth pointing out that abortion is wrong for the same reasons that rape is wrong. So if you oppose raping women and impregnating them without their consent, you should also support aborting, you should also oppose aborting the babies conceived in rape. Why is rape wrong? Because it's unjustified and intentional violence against an innocent human being. Why is abortion wrong? Because it's unjustified and intentional violence against an innocent human being. Except in the case of abortion, the victim is nearly always murdered. So that's the fourth flaw, is they hide behind hard cases like rape to make themselves look more compassionate. The fifth mistake they make, and this is probably the biggest one, and the one I want you to be the most aware of, is they confuse human value with human function. Let me say that again. They confuse your value as a human being with how you function as a human being. Okay? This is the same mistake that Nazis and racists made. They looked at a victim class that they had a vested interest in murdering, and then they came up with random functions and criteria that they said must be met to be a person. Obviously, they always come up with a criteria of functions that their victim class doesn't have or doesn't meet so that they can turn around and use that personhood criteria to justify the mistreatment or murder of the class of victims that they always wanted to abuse in the first place. (laughs) It's not a coincidence. They confuse human value with human function. So they say that you must be capable of certain functions and capacities or accidental properties to be granted personhood and value. So for racists, they said that blacks had a different skin color and they weren't as smart. Those were the fundamental arguments, right? They were stupider, and they had a, deeper, they had a uh, different skin color. For Nazis, it was the Jews had the wrong religion and the wrong appearance, so they weren't persons. And for pro-abortion advocates, how does, what functions do they come up with to randomly deny personhood to the unborn? Well, the acronym SLED that I told you earlier, size, 
level of development, environment, and dependency. By the way, this is a debate that's been raging in uh, the world for thousands of years, and it's the debate between the endowment view of human beings and the performance view of human beings. The endowment view is the view that we hold to as Christians, right? We are endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Meaning that because these rights come from God, they actually can't be taken away from us. Another way to say that is that it's in virtue of being a human being to have dignity and rights. You can't separate the dignity of a human being from him or herself. The performance view of personhood says, no, there's nothing about being human that requires dignity and respect. There's nothing about being part of the class of homo sapiens that requires me to respect you. Your right to life is purely dependent on how you perform. Now, what performance functions are necessary in order to get this status of personhood and a right to life? Well, whatever functions the power class who's in control arbitrarily select out of their butts. And this has been the story of human history for thousands of years. They confuse human value with human functions. So, what kind of functions do they arbitrarily come up with to deny the unborn personhood? And you need to be aware of these because you're going to see these play out in arguments for abortions. Here's a few of them, okay? Self-awareness. The baby's not self-aware. They don't know that they exist. They're not aware of their own existence. Now, notice, the pro-choicer will never give a reason as to why self-awareness is a value-giving trait in the first place. They'll merely assume it. So back to begging the question. Right? Did racists ever offer a substantive argument as to why skin color was value-giving in the first place? They just assumed it. So we make the same mistakes today. It's just a new criteria of functions. If we can kill the unborn through abortion because they're not self-aware, then we can also kill infants. The most recent studies have shown that an infant is not self-aware or aware of their own existence until several months after birth. So if you want to apply that functional bigotry, then you just denied the infant personhood as well. And by the way, that's something that Peter Singer has supported for decades. Peter Singer is a philosopher at Princeton who supports killing children up to one or two years old. So he is intellectually consistent. He grounds rights in these functions, and then he's consistent enough to say, you're right, the infant doesn't meet that criteria person either. So yeah, I'll be consistent. I'll say, yeah, you can kill babies up to one year old. Now, most pro-choice Members of the pro-choice movement don't support that, but they believe the same ideas. They're just not consistently applying them. Okay, what other kind of functions do, are we saying that the unborn must have to have value? Consciousness, right? The baby's not conscious. Well, yeah, but neither are you in a coma. Neither are you if you get in a car accident and you're knocked unconscious. Should I not drag your body out of the flaming car to try to save your life? Because you're not conscious, therefore you don't have a right to life. Can I sneak into your grandpa's uh, hospital room when he's in a coma and slit his throat? That's totally acceptable, right? Because he's not conscious. In fact, what if you, pro-choicer, were actually in the waiting room with your family determining whether to remove life support or not? Let's say you ended up choosing to remove life support. Well, I just sped it up. I just sped it up. I, I just killed him a little bit earlier. Does the pro-choicer think that that's the same as removing life support? No, I did something wrong. But grandpa's not conscious just like the unborn, but they don't accept that bigotry applied postnatally. 
What about desires? They say the unborn doesn't have any desires. This is a big one. And if you, if you ever debate with a, a philosopher or someone who loves philosophy, they'll, they'll throw these kind of arguments at you to deny personhood to the unborn. They'll talk about how the child doesn't have any desires to go on living. And so their argument is that if I don't violate your desires, I don't violate your rights. So because the child has no desire to go on living, killing him through abortion doesn't deny him any rights. That's their argument. Okay, very well. Anyone know what Buddhists try to do? What they try to reach and realize? Nirvana. What is nirvana? The eradication of all desire. Now, I don't think this is actually humanly possible, but let's say it is. Let's say a Buddhist reaches nirvana and gets rid of all desires. He has no desires anymore. If I kill him, have I not violated his rights? I guess not. Right, pro-choicer? Because he meets the, he fails to meet the same standard that the unborn fails to meet doesn't have a desire to go on living. What about a teenager whose girlfriend broke up with him and he's so depressed that he becomes suicidally tendent? So he doesn't have a desire to go on living, just like the unborn. If I kill the suicidally tendent 16-year-old boy, have I not violated his rights? I guess not, right, pro-choicer? As soon as you apply their criteria for personhood, as soon as you grant that premise, you can justify killing anyone outside the womb as well. What about ability to feel pain? You guys heard this one? Oh, well, hey, pro-lifer, the unborn can't feel pain. So who cares, right? It's not a person, doesn't have rights. What about people who have congenital analgesia? Anyone know what congenital analgesia is? The inability to feel pain. So let's round up all the Americans with congenital analgesia and murder them and call it reproductive justice, right, pro-choicer? And they go, oh, no. Well, then why are you denying the unborn a right to life simply because they cannot feel pain? Last one, viability. You know, viability, the subjective standard of when you can survive outside the womb. Viability is totally subjective because every few years, we develop new technologies so we can save preemies born at earlier and earlier stages, which means the unborn child becomes more viable at earlier stages every few years. So it's a completely subjective standard based off of external medical advancements. So according to the pro-choicer, the unborn's right to life is purely dependent on the brilliance of scientists and medical professionals to develop medical treatment to save preemies. Very strange world of human equality, huh? Well, are infants right after birth viable? Meaning, can they survive without the, de the dependency and support of their parents? No, what happens if you leave an infant in a crib and do nothing? The infant dies and the parents are charged with infanticide. But what if mom says to the judge in a court of law, but my lesbian dance theory major at UC Berkeley, my professor told me that I have bodily autonomy. I have bodily autonomy. So my breasts, my choice. I just didn't nurse my child because I have bodily autonomy. Would the judge ex uh, accept that form of argumentation? Probably not. Judge would probably say, actually, it was because your child was more dependent that you had a greater obligation to care for them. But we turn that on its head on abortion, and we say, because the baby in the womb is more dependent, it gives us a greater right to kill them. What a tragic inversion of justice. So they confuse human value with human function. Those are some of the functions that they randomly select to deny personhood and a right to life to the unborn. But they never tell us why the possession of those functions is value-giving in the first place. Right? So, like, what is it about those functions that grants rights? Why are you picking those functions? What if I say that the functions required to be a person and have rights is the ability to multiply, the ability to play violin, the ability to speak? Those are my functions that I'm going to use. So if you haven't learned to play violin, you're screwed because you're not a person. 
Pro-choice would probably go, dude, that's a stupid function <laughs> that you've picked in order to be a person. Yeah, so are yours. And you've never given me a reason why the possession of those functions are value-giving in the first place. You've just assumed it, just like Nazis and racists did. If we confuse human value with human function, we also justify infanticide because the infant doesn't meet many of the, of the functional criteria that they use to dehumanize the unborn. And the last problem with this is that human equality is destroyed. If we confuse human value with human function, brothers and sisters, then this idea of human equality, that we're equal because of human nature, is destroyed. It's a myth, you can tuck it away with the tooth fairy. What do I mean by that? When you ground human value in accidental properties, like skin color, gender, age, consciousness, and size, you dehumanize all human beings because none of us share those functions or properties equally. So when you look around the room and you look at one another, ask yourself the question, what's the only thing we have in common? Is it gender? Is it age? Is it size? Is it dependency? Is it IQ? Is it athletic or musical ability? No. What's the only thing we have in common? We're humans, a human nature. And when do we have a human nature? Uh, when we become human. And when do we become human? The moment of conception. That's hashtag science for you. And this is the same point that Abraham Lincoln made in the 1850s as he was debating that racist Democrat Stephen Douglas. Do you remember the Stephen Douglas debates? Well, none of us actually remember them, but I mean, you know what I mean. Brilliant, right? These things went on for like five or six hours. Their cross-examination was like two hours. By the way, compare that to our recent presidential debates. My goodness, has our rhetoric fallen a long way. But Stephen Douglas was a racist. He was actually personally against slavery. And you ever met anyone say, I'm personally pro-life. I would never kill my baby, and I would never tell my daughter that she could kill her baby because that's my grandchild. But we shouldn't legislate it. Everyone should be able to decide for themselves. That's what Stephen Douglas believed on slavery. He said, quote, every state should have the right to vote it up or down. Vote what up or down? Slavery! So he said, each state can decide amongst themselves whether they can purchase image bearers of God and treat them like animals or not. Because federalism, right? Local control, that's totally chill. That was his belief. Well, in an imagined debate with a slavery supporter, Abraham Lincoln once wrote these words, and he would use this type of reasoning in his debates with Stephen Douglas in 1858. Here's what Abraham Lincoln said. I want you to listen because he makes the same point I just made, which is that if you ground human rights and value in things that come in varying degrees, like size, age, skin color, and intellect, you actually dehumanize all human beings. Here's what Lincoln said. He said, okay, racist, you say A is white and B is black. You say A is white and B is black. Therefore, the lighter skin should have the right to enslave the darker skin. He says, very well. This means that you are to be a slave to the first man you meet with a skin fairer than your own. Then he says, oh, but you say it is a, it is a, uh, a matter of intellect, that whites are intellectually the superiors of blacks and therefore have the right to enslave them. Take care, by this rule, you are to be a slave to the first man you meet with an intellect superior to your own. And then Lincoln says, oh, but you say it is a question of interest. And if you can make it your interest, you have the right to enslave another. Very well, and if he can make it his interest, he has the right to enslave you. If we all stood up here this evening and we put our palms next to one another, would we all have the same shade of skin color? No, it comes in varying degrees. Do we all have the same IQ? 
No, it comes in varying degrees. So if you ground personhood and the right to life, which is the most fundamental right, in those functions that come in varying degrees, human equality is destroyed. And therefore, might makes right. And the elite class can determine who they get to murder or who they get to treat as well because they have invented random functional criteria to determine who gets to live and who gets to die. The pro-choicer does the same thing when they say that the unborn can be killed because they're smaller. Yeah, but I'm larger than you. The unborn can be killed because they're less developed. Yeah, but your parents are more developed than you. The unborn can be killed because they're in a different environment, the womb. Yes, we're all in different environments. And the unborn can be killed because they're dependent on their mother. Yes, and so is the infant. If you ground rights in things that come in varying degrees, it follows that rights come in varying degrees. Therefore, the albino, the one with the greatest IQ, and Goliath have the greatest rights of all because they're the smartest, they're the palest skin, and they're the largest. Anyone like that world? No, I don't think so. And that's the world that the pro-choicer creates when they deny the existence of a human nature which begins at the moment we're human, the moment of conception. So each of these five ways that many pro-choice advocates respond to the abortion issue are mistaken and misplaced because they fail to adequately answer the only question that matters in the issue of abortion. And that question is, what is the unborn? If the unborn is a human being like you and I, then they deserve the human rights that flow from a human nature. Only by addressing and answering this question can we find moral clarity on the issue of abortion. Hopefully this equips you to stand for life, recognize the strategies and philosophy of the enemy so that you can be a pro-life apologist, a pro-life ninja, and an ambassador for the unborn at a time and in an administration that is more hostile to the unborn than any that we have ever seen in American history. Thank you guys so much for coming out. We're going to take a quick break, and I appreciate you being here. We'll be right back. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in for that special uh, episode. Hey, would you share this episode with uh, someone in your life? Maybe someone who's a sort of a pro-choice moderate, uh, maybe a pro-choice kook, uh, someone whose mind you're trying to change and someone you're trying to reach with the truth. Uh, this is very helpful because uh, now you kind of know all of the pitfalls and flaws of pro-abortion rhetoric and reasoning. And those can be very effective conversations with those in your life who disagree with you, but with whom you have a, a cordial relationship and can put a stone in their shoe to get them to reconsider their beliefs and ideas. Um, so thank you so much. Share this show, uh, this episode with someone. Uh, have coffee with someone over these ideas and, and chat about it. Um, would you also leave this show a rating and review? It really helps us reach more people. We're climbing up the ratings. If you want to watch this show, you can go over to my YouTube channel, Seth Gruber, A Voice for the Unborn. Subscribe, hit the notifications bell so you don't miss an episode if you want to enjoy this show visually on the second largest search engine in the world. If you want to support this show and help us reach more people to expand our production value, number of episodes, and the kind of content we create, then consider becoming a patron of the show by going to patreon.com forward slash unaborted. Check out our awesome tiers and perks that you'll get for supporting the show. In the near future here, we'll be also rolling out a book club for pro-life individuals to get equipped and to talk about these ideas with me. So thank you so much. Go subscribe, leave the show a rating and review, share this episode, and we'll see you next week. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Oh, my God.